Hello ladies and gents, boys and girls, and welcome to the Nathan Haas episode of Sigma Sports Presents, Matt Stevens Unplugged. Well, what can I say about Nathan? Well, he's a former mountain biker turned pro roadie, now riding with French world tour team Cofidis, have been around for ages. He's recently found a new lease of life in the gravel riding circuit, or the GRC. He's from Brisbane, but not really from Brisbane. Listen now for the Brisbane quiz, which isn't really about Brisbane. Hashtag Brisbane. He's also got his own podcast about gravel riding called The Gravel Log, which is a cheeky play on words, I believe. Uh, check that out if you're a gravel hog. Plus, he's a very handy musician, believe it or not. And if you're a fan of pro cyclists flaunting their jingle singing skills, stay tuned right to the end. Or simply to scrub to the end if you don't fancy listening to anything that me and Nathan have got to say. So sit back, relax, perhaps with a beverage of your choice, kick your shoes off, ensuring they don't land on any small beings or pets, and enjoy the pod. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged by Sigma Sports. Nathan Haas started his cycling career as a dominant mountain biker before switching to road racing in 2009. Now riding with Tim Cofidis, he's enjoying his time in the saddle more than ever as he partakes in more and more gravel riding events, or GREs. In our chat, we discuss why Mark Cavendish can't be compared to Eddie Merckx, why there have been so many crashes in the opening stages of this year's Tour de France, and what led Nathan to admit that he doesn't understand cycling anymore. And of course, the awkwardness of extra-large Toblerones. Check it out. Mate, thank you very much, Nathan, for coming on the pod. Um... It's lovely to hear your voice. I can't see you because this is a audio-only podcast, um, so it's quite strange, but I quite like it because I, I know you that well. I can imagine your face um, all lovely in your place in, um, in, in Girona. So for the purposes of, of the podcast, mate, where are you? What can you see immediately around you? Describe where you are. Well, let's paint the picture even further. I've just popped yeah. into the shower. It's hot here in Spain. I'm a little bit blushed. My hair's wet and I'm wearing a big, loose, white T-shirt. So I'm in ultimate relax land right now. Um, I'm actually in a room that I've been using for my podcast, which is now covered in duvets on the wall. And it's a quiet little black box to keep all external sounds out. So it's actually not a very sexy environment. No, but a a practical one. Ultimate podcast. Could you call it a pod? Could you call it a pod pod? I think you could call it a pod. Oh my God. Somebody needs to write this down. A pod pod. You could like design pod pods and sell them. So like a, like a little kind of mini shed with lining with kind of maybe like a cut, like a, like a soft play area uh, with a built in iPod and and video conferencing facilities. And just, uh, and then there's an app as well that's connected somehow to it. A pod pod. I mean, everyone's doing pods these days. I heard a statistic in Denmark. There's actually more podcast shows than there are people that actually listen to podcasts. That's so amazing. The market's there. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's something similar. I, I, I worked it out using rudimentary maths once. I went to an airport, and I've been to a few airports, as you have uh, in our travels over the years. And I'm, I came to the conclusion quite quickly that there are more Toblerones than people. That is a statistic I'm very happy about. I'm very fond of the old Toblerone. <laughs> They're great. I mean, this is not sponsored by Toblerone, but what a cracking... What's the biggest Toblerone you've eaten? Have you had what, Have you had a go at one of those massive ones that weighs about four kilo? I have, actually. You know, it's called the Toblerone and on and on and on and on. 
and it just keeps going on and on and on. I think it was like a meter and a half long and I got gifted it. And it's actually quite an intimidating thing because like each little mountain that you pull off is like a handful, you know, and like you, you bite into it and you sort of, it's like when you get one of those big hamburgers in America, you're like, I actually need a knife and fork for this. I can't even get the knife around it. It is because you break it off and you do need to, you, you need to be quite hench, don't you, forward slash buff to actually, and as cyclists, uh, we're not known for our upper body strength. So if there's an achievement in just breaking off one of those ginormous chunks, but then you've done that and you think that's, um, no, that's a sense of accomplishment. But as you say, quite rightly, I've attempted one, but then what point do you bite it? Because your jaw isn't big enough to go around the end, is it? You just need to kind of nibble at it like a rabbit almost. Yeah, and then... Then it becomes almost like an intimate thing with the chocolate, which is its whole other thing. But my, my only beef with Toblerone is that because those chunks are so big, you don't really like enjoy it like a nice piece of chocolate. And I find myself like eating it like I'm eating a big loaf of bread. I'm just like, yum, 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 yum. And then I'm like, I just total the Toblerone and I feel sick. Yeah. It's weird. It's like, the, I'm trying to think of what the cycling equivalent would be of a Toblerone. Oh, it'd probably be something, you know, or, you know, there's ultra marathons where there's like six marathons back to back with no sleep. It's like one of those, like, it's kind of silly really, isn't it? Um, I mean, but I don't, I don't think I've eaten a whole one, but I just over time ate it and it became kind of quite dirty and there was like handprints in it and stuff like that. There's kind of, yeah, there's, it's an almost like an ordeal in fact, isn't it? Toblerone and hygiene don't really go hand in hand because of no. the hands on the Toblerone. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Nathan. That's a fantastic chat. Nice segue. It, <laughs> no, in, indeed. Uh, no, I love a Toblerone. I'm sure our listeners do. Um, but Nathan, first and foremost, mate, how are you, mate? I'm fantastic. I'm uh in a nice period of the year where you get to watch bike racing at 5.30, the finals kind of kick off and yep. you get to go and ride and train. And I don't know, there's always something kind of magical about this time of year where I'm as much as I am a cycling athlete, I am also a cycling fanatic. And for me, I just love watching the tour fold out and it's just great. I, I'm, and I go, and I know you've ridden the tour before. You've ridden all of the grand tours, Nathan. But um, and I know you're not riding it this year because you're, you're chatting to me, and the stage is ongoing. But it has been a quite remarkable few days, isn't it? I don't, and I didn't want you to come to my pod and talk just about the Tour de France. But I think as we are a couple of days in, five days in, six days in, it's been nuts, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's the only word we could use. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's. There's always like a small, even when it's not part of your plan for the season to do the tour, there's always this like small part of you that's like, oh, you know, I wish I was at the big show this year. But then I saw those first three stages and I was just looking at where those crashes happened and it's exactly where I always sit in the bunch. You know, that first area just behind the big teams controlling it. And I was like, I would have crashed at least three times by now and that would not have been fun. Wow. Wow. I mean, I was... Yesterday, I was uh, I did like a corporate ride with some really interesting people, and, and we got an, a Q and A afterwards. And they're asking me about why is the tour, why this year in particular has the Tour de France been so crashy? And, and I and I don't kind of really have the have the answer. Of course, uh, it's been a while since I've raced in the pro peloton, and I kind of think I'm pretty educated on it. But I don't kind of live I don't live in that kind of world anymore. Although I can I can read it reasonably well. But Nathan, what, you're you're there week in, week out, racing in, in this modern peloton with these new superstars of the sport, with the kind of cutting-edge tech, the speeds that we're riding at. But 
And I, this is a question I have asked several of my guests before, but why do you think uh, there are so many kind of crashes? Or I mean, is it because there's there's so much stress, so much at stake? Is it there's not as much respect as there was maybe when you started nearly 10 years ago? What do you think it is? Well, there's a few questions in there. So I'll do my best to answer yeah. that. Uh, Jonathan Borders is a man of many words, some of them not worth listening to, and some of them are just blobs of genius. And he did a tweet after a couple of days of the tour that I really resonated with, which was like, everyone saying this Tour de France is crashier than ever. And he said, actually, the last two years have been more abnormal and more the, light, the outliers in the fact that there weren't many crashes. Whereas this year, it's sort of more or less back on where it has been. I think just the severity of the crashes has been a little bit worse just from, you know, the situations of, you know, that downhill on stage three, that was particularly bad. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a small road on a downhill on a day that everyone thought it was going to be wet, but then you're also backing it up after two days where there were some just, you know, freak crashes that, um, you know, that can happen at any bike race, but it just happened to happen at the tour. And, you probably remember from your days racing is that a tone gets set in a bike race in the peloton kind of from kilometer zero. If, if yeah. no one's attacking on that first stage and it's pretty chill, the next days seem to be pretty chill and you just have pretty straightforward finals and it makes sense. But yeah. once the sort of blood's in the water, you know, the whole tone changes and it just gets a little bit more nervous. More directors are saying you have to be at the front instead of 15 K to go. It's now 50 K to go. And there's only so many teams that can be at the front. And then when you think about the Tour de France, you know, maybe you can have six or seven teams wide and then you have eight riders behind that. So seven, eights, you're already kind of up to 60 riders more or less before the first rider on any other team can actually sit behind that. Wow. So it's just, it's just a thing that happens at the Tour de France, which is it turns into a big drag race for every single team to whoever's brave enough to take up the front early, then the next team comes and the next team comes and the next team comes. And then once that front row is full, it's kind of just a big mess behind it. And then for yeah. those teams at the front, they're all sort of fighting each other. And if the road goes from two lanes wide to one and a half, then again, there's another compression and there's more stress. And it's just, it's not the Tour de France and it's not necessarily the roads. Um, I mean, the roads play a part and you know maybe there can be some discussions about you know, for the first week of the Tour de France, we don't need to have anything that's, you know, unnecessarily risky. But I wasn't there, so I can't really speak on it. And it's very different sure. watching it on television. But the uh, the main point for me is it's just the Tour de France is literally where teams make it or break it in a season. And yeah. if you win a stage of the Tour or you get the GC result of the Tour that you're after, you can basically guarantee that your sponsors will stay on board. And if they don't, and the team's up for contract, it becomes a less powerful position. So the tour is just stress. The Giro yeah. is just beautiful and it's a romantic race and it's fantastic. And then the Vuelta is like super relaxed, but everyone's still super focused. But then the yeah. tour is just stress from every yeah. side, from the media, from the sponsors, from the directors. And, you know, it's the Tour de France. It's just the pressure cooker of cycling. So a crash is inevitable at the tour. Absolutely. Was it upsetting to see how bad they were this year? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's uh, and I, I think as well as, as the years have gone on, I think what gets amplified even more is is the the lens through which, as fans and viewers, observers, 
um, through we, the, the way we kind of watch it and consume it because we, we watch it on the television, but then we've got generally all of us. I've got a couple of other devices open with Twitter or something like that, you know, and you've got these different, these kind of viewpoints in honing in on it on the slow motion and like calling people out. And there's this kind of echo chamber, isn't there, which kind of amplifies the kind of gravity um, of, of some of these crashes. So, so it, it kind of blurs things ever so slightly. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I would, I would agree. I would agree. It's, you know, there's a positive and a negative side to anything. And, um, you know, all this extra media that we're getting is also fantastic for the sport because really it's just about the scope of the optics, which yep. makes our sport valuable or not. So the more screens that we can be on, the more sellable the sport is. Yeah. But then there's a downside to that as well, which is when we start focusing on some of the negative things. But, you know, when it comes down to cycling, I, do, I don't mind when there's rivalries or bickerings because that's sport, you know, it's, it's one of the things people love the most about uh, baseball or NFL or you know any sports where that kind of you know rivalry happens and yeah. and I think cycling's been a little bit void of that in the last you know maybe decade I think a lot of people have tried to make the sport very sterile for good reason um, but I also think that there's quite a lot of fun when we start seeing people talking shit or slamming each other and not not in a way that should ever be derogatory or offensive but um, you know when it's part of the game I think it's a bit of fun. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You, you need that kind of showmanship. You need. I mean, that's what makes sport what it is, you know. And it also it's also what creates characters, and that's when people start to engage more. You know, almost like a not. I wouldn't go so far to say a pantomime, but that that degree of theatre alongside the sport itself, with these characters facing off against each other, a little bit of, of tension on social media. That I think it adds to it, and and that's why. Although I'm not a massive fan of boxing, for example, that they get it right in terms of hype, don't they? And sport to be successful does need a degree of kind of hype to create this kind of interest, isn't it? So, and we do have now in the modern era uh, a wonderful array of kind of very unique, different kind of characters who essentially have come into this sport and are, you know, not. It's a bit of a cliche to say they're they're kind of rewriting the rule books they're just racing with a lot more flamboyance and racing a lot more instinct and willing to take risks aren't they yeah i i um am simultaneously blown away by how awesome that is and then also sometimes just don't really understand cycling that much right right once where you're just going wow <laughs> like i was in a i was at the dauphine uh, a few weeks ago and uh a nice breakaway had formed. It was sort of just like a normal, normal breakaway. I think six or seven riders, you know, dangerous enough that we had to push hard all day, Yeah. but not dangerous enough for the whole race to kind of just freak out. And uh, Bora was controlling the race because they had the yellow jersey. And Niels Pollitt, who's one of the you know, strongest engines in the entire field, was riding the front at a solid pace. Yeah. Then we hit this innocuous climb, and then all of a sudden six or seven riders just started attacking off the front. And they bridged across and then it wasn't even up to Bora to control anymore. It was sort of just like the whole race turned into like a washing machine. And Neil right. came back to me after he'd been doing all this work and he goes, Nathan, I just don't understand cycling anymore. <laughs> and he's, you, he's, a, he's a, obviously a, a you know, wonderful, he's a rider that you know very well. You were teammates, weren't you, a little for a little bit of time at Katusha, weren't you? But uh, that's really interesting that... With, from within the peloton, you're almost like scratching your heads at what's happening. Um, yeah, I mean, when Greg Van Avermaet's sitting there going like, man, 
I don't even know what to kind of think of this right now because I like to attack, but who attacks at 100Ks to go? And then, you know, it, it's just this flip of the script that, um, you know, it's, I shouldn't say that, you know, old cycling was better or modern cycling. It's just cycling. Cycling evolves every single year. And one of the reasons I watch so much racing is it's, it's like research. And you can actually predict how the classics are going to be raced by watching some of the classics and then yes, yeah. you can watch the Giro and sort of see what style of racing was evoked at that point, which players were there, what teams are trying to sort of evolve into. And then that's also needs to be something that you play into your own tactics. Yeah. Um, but right now it just seems to be a little bit more unpredictable. Like, I mean, Matthew Vanderpol right now is in the, in the breakaway and he's in the other jersey. It's it's incredible, isn't it? And uh, again, um, by the time you listen to this pod, that stage will have been done and dusted. But it is unfolding at the moment. And um, without one dwelling to, to dwell too much on the on, on the tour, that is a a perfect illustration of of the kind of unpredictable nature that you've got the yellow jersey now six minutes up the road from the guy that's in second place overall. Although he's not fancy to win overall, what, what a, it is! It's very very unusual. It's um, I, I actually as a spectator now and as a commenter, I quite enjoy it because I, I try and unpick the logic behind it. Is it pre-planned? Is there an element of planning and spontaneity? You know, is, uh, and I don't really know the answers. And I quite enjoy that. But I guess when, when you're in it, living it, because we know that the, the sport from time to time can be formulaic and you, you learn about tactics from previous sets of tactics that have unfolded, don't you? I mean, that's, that's your kind of baseline. That's what you kind of learn from. You learn from patterns, don't you? But now, a lot of the time, it's just that's just gone, isn't it? So you're like, what the hell is going to happen today? Which I think is great. I think it's great, and definitely from the commentary box, you know, t- I think today's the longest stage of the tour in like 50 years or something. Since, two, since 2000, yeah. Oh, sorry, I've rushed ahead in 21 right. years. <laughs> um, 249 Ks, and normally this would be a god awful stage for you to commentate. Um, because nothing would happen towards, you know, nothing would happen for five hours and then there would be just a gentle two-hour wind-up, a little bit like San Remo. But, um, you know, today <laughs> the TV is going wild and yeah. there's there's lots of dynamics even happening in that breakaway group because um, there's some other politics with points and whatnot. So it's, I think it's great that cycling is evolving and I think um, for me it's a little bit like the concept of the free market. The free market's never wrong. It just is what it is. Yeah. Um, and there's sort of like no judgment because it just will be the beast that it will be. Um, and where cycling is this year will be different to the next and to the next. And then yeah. in 10 years time, we'll probably refer to this as the old cycling and it might've done a full circle. So it's, that's the thing I like about cycling is people say, Oh, it's so predictable. It's so predictable, but actually between year and year, it's so different. Yeah. I mean, will I want to talk about your, you know, early days of riding a bike but before we do I just want to touch on one other point about the tour and it's next teammate of yours and a guy that we know really well Mark Cavendish I mean just uh, and we've all been posting pictures of Cav for various reasons it's because it was, it's quite it's quite spectacular quite wonderful what's happened with Cav in, in, the, in the tour this year just wanted to know what your take was on it apart from thinking it's amazing I mean just, just what's your take oh, <laughs> Do I only get one take? <laughs> no, you can have a couple of takes. But just so it, because it, it, I think I'm asking you this. This is your pod mate, but I think it's such a significant happening. It's a person that we both know, and we even if we didn't know him, it's just something that I kind of you kind of need to talk about because it's you know five year drought, five year absence from the tour, and to come back in at 36 
do what he's doing now is it's nothing short of, of, of magnificent really it's it's a and and I, and I personally think that these two wins whatever whatever happens in the rest of the tour have kind of affirmed him for me as the greatest sprinter of the modern era um i think he was beforehand but this resurgence for want of a better word it's an emphatic statement that he is the best and has come back from from whatever and he doesn't like to use the word comeback i mean i don't know what other word you can use because it is a comeback uh but i don't know what's your take on it mate sprinting is a field in cycling that's very fluid um from season to season and even within a season and you know we were talking on well i shouldn't say we but the the media was talking about sam bennett being the best sprinter of the world at the moment and other people yeah. were saying Caleb is and before that it was Marcel and but there's just one name that seems to have popped up for the last 13 or 14 years in that yeah. conversation and um it's to be the first thing to say it's remarkable because sprinters traditionally are guys that have careers that burn really bright yeah that flame goes out um, and whether that's from crashing or getting scared or losing the speed, sort of irrelevant, but that seems to be um, something that has been an assumed fact about yeah. the physiology and mental capacity of cyclists. But I think Cav sort of just flipped the script again here and he's just changed uh, the whole conversation. And I think a lot of people like that sort of comeback story, but for me, it's not so much about the comeback story. It's just... Um, a reaffirmation that Cav kind of transcends cycling in many ways. And um, he's just got this character and likability that I don't think there was a dry eye or unemotional bike rider. And, and you see all the sprinters that are competing against him actually hugging him. You know, he's yeah. inspiring. And um, I, I definitely think it goes beyond just the results. But the question of if he's the greatest all, of all time even before he had these two wins, you know, you, you can't compare the way Eddie Merckx won two of the front stages to Cavendish. Yeah, yeah, Eddie Merckx in an yeah. era where, you know, a lot of the guys had part-time jobs. Yeah. And a lot of the guys didn't have the capacity to train like he did or didn't have the technology to train like he did. And yeah. not saying that he wasn't exceptional, but he won mountain stages, he won time trials, he won sprints. So if we're talking just in the realm of the greatest sprinter of all time, especially and more specifically the greatest Tour de France sprinter of all time, Cav already at 30 was way above where Eddie Merckx was. Yeah. So before he added two more to his tally and hopefully more, I don't think it's even a question. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough, mate. Fair enough. Well, let's let's go back in time, mate. Let's go back to the 1980s. Um, not that you would have been riding a bike in the 1980s because you were born in 89. That would have been a hell of a feat to be riding at one year of age. Uh, one, one year old, sorry. But what's your first memory of, of riding a bike, mate? What is it? That's a good question. That's a good question. First of all, I want to say I'm definitely an 80s baby, but yes. my biggest regret was not being born earlier. Because I think the greatest era of music ever was the late 80s, early 90s uh, American grunge scene. Like yep. Bands like Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots and Alice in Chains. I just missed my generation, man. I yeah. just missed it. <laughs> no, I'm a fan of all those bands. That, that kind of was my generation. And also the British bands that came out around that time as well. Yeah, like back Hulk, in. Oasis. 
Yeah, it was. It was a. They were, I wouldn't call them halcyon days, but it's a great time just for rock music, mate. Or just music in general. Um, but uh, and, and I know you are. We'll, we'll go on to that in a bit. I know you're a, a big music fan, and you, you're fond of a bit of guitar strumming, aren't you? Pluck. Oh, do you I, strum? Do you pluck? I, I, I. We'll just use the word. I dabble. You dabble. You do dabble, and I've seen you dabble. You've dabbled in front of me, and it's it's impressive. Um, you, you're a proper little muso, aren't you? But um, um, and maybe. What we'll think we'll do, uh, maybe towards the end of the pod, if you can just... Is your guitar nearby? It's sitting next to me. Okay, well... This is just, the pod pod. And it's you, it's within the pod pod. The that, pod. That's good. So I think a little bit later on, as we sort of start to wrap up the pod, we're still, it's still early days, so there's no panic just yet. Uh, but maybe think of a way of strumming, strumming your way out of the pod uh, as we then fade down the music. That would be a lovely way to end it. So if you could just maybe, at the back of your, your mind, mate, think about something soon. Well, maybe a 30-second outro... Uh, with lyrics, well, that would be lovely. Should I maybe make them <laughs> up as I go? Yes, please. Don't write them down now. That will spoil it. So just <laughs> random lyrics. That that would be great. Um, which is, um, which I'm sorry, I've just, uh, I've got my laptop open and mess. I don't know how to, I don't even know how to mute my messages. Did you hear that ping? <laughs> sorry, guys. Right. I'm off on a tangent. Let's bring it straight back. Nathan, first memory of riding a bicycle. My first memory of riding a bicycle was when my family were living in Rome in 1995. Okay. I was a military baby. My dad was a, an officer and we were stationed in Rome for some of the work that he was doing. And I remember getting a bike from this sort of big American uh, supermarket kind of all shopping things facility that a lot of foreigners went to and it was a huffy and it was the sexiest oh, thing right. I've ever seen in my life. It had big fat tires and cool grips and shiny stickers. I still remember the bike. And we lived sort of next to this small lake in the city that was like a big long concrete strip with no cars. So it was like the perfect place to possibly ride a bike. And I was super psyched up for it. It was like all I wanted to do. So my dad Rips me down there. He's like, all right, we're going to learn how to ride a bike. Yeah. Pops me on the bike. And for the next five minutes, it was fear and tears, which is, <laughs> I think, <laughs> a funny irony. <clears throat> we still actually have the photo kicking around somewhere of me sitting proudly on my bike, but kind of with this, like, soft, somber face. And I look at it sometimes and I think, I wonder what the six-year-old me would think right now. And I'm saying, keep going, buddy, because you'll probably be all right. Oh, that's fantastic! You, um, you'll have to you'll have to ring your dad or something or your parents and just try and get that get a, if they can take a photo of that picture and send it to us for the for the pod promo, mate. That would be amazing. I love I do love it when people post pictures of of them on on a bike as kids. It's just it's it's so wonderful, isn't it? Do you know? I'm I mean I, I might seem like that creepy guy sitting at a park watching children, but I get so much joy and just passion when I see kids riding around on bikes and having fun and when they have their first little crashes and they're not sure whether they're okay or they should cry but generally they just get back up on the bike and you're like that's what it's all about man it's just it's about enjoying that feeling of being on two wheels and it's um yeah it's a wonderful thing seeing somebody enjoy that for the first time or for some of their first times I just love it I I, I totally agree mate Uh, and I kind of because these days we're carrying our phones around and we go on a bike ride and we're all, well, all of us in varying degrees are taking photos of stuff all the time, aren't we? And I have to obviously can't take a fo- photos of kids, but there's so you think, Oh great. And you think, ah, oh, no, I can't take a photo of that. But it's just, it is, 
the kind of moments of joy, just kids with the parents bazzing along on, on either little tiny little balanced bikes or I don't know, it's it, it probably it makes me feel actually quite it's quite powerful, mate, as well as being kind of funny and nostalgic and it's it actually has a power to it and it really makes me very, very emotional when I see it. It's kind of it's profound. Do you know I, I feel that my job as a professional cyclist has two sides. There's obviously the commercial side where I'm essentially a big billboard that gets moved around. And the more times my billboard gets on a photo or television, the better I've done my job. But the other side of the job, and this is the side that I lean into when I'm having a tough time with motivation or injury or sickness, is I remember that my job is to inspire people to ride bikes, to be healthy, to find yeah. that freedom, to find that feeling. And, and I take that quite to heart. You know, I take that quite yeah. seriously. I think inspiring people to be on a bike is one of the most profound things I'll probably end up doing in my life. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it's important. You know, you you you're you're a role model, mate. You really, really are. But uh, I know. So when so, I love the fact that you first wrote. I mean, I know you love Italy. I know you obviously live in Spain, but I'm I'm a big fan of Italy. I absolutely adore the place. But the fact you started riding your bike in Italy as an Australian is very cool. And the fact, mate, it was a huffy, is even better because um, my childhood hero growing up amongst other other riders and pop stars and stuff was was Greg LeMond and he rode a Huffy and so one of the earliest brands that I was aware of growing up was Huffy which is and I think am I right that the bike that was used in ET it was a Huffy you will have to do the research on that I'm, I will so, yeah I, 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 have a, I have a feeling I have a feeling that um and, and that kind of reignited that kind of brand it was a, actually i'm saying this and it might not be true but i think it's a huffy um but and also what a corking name huffy great isn't it i wonder how they kind of came up with it like, yeah was it I'm, I'm, just like sneeze and you're like huffy they're like dude say that again <laughs> yeah can, can we, we can, a bit but this time a bit slower so we can write it down is there a silent ph I tell you, I tell you what, Nathan. I'm so intrigued by this, and, and because we have technology these days at our, fi- our fingertips, Huffy BMX. Um, let's have a little look. Name make genealogy. Huffy bikes. Uh, Huffy BMX museum. Um, that's going to take too long. Anyway, uh, let's let's mo- let's move along, mate. It, it's time. Actually, can you hear that in the background? Is there something? Random question oh. alert. What on earth? Random question alert. Random question alert. It is time for a random question. Well, sorry about that. We're from from Huffy Bikes to the random question generator. As you know, you've listened to one or two of the podcasts. Um, as part of my contract with Sigma Sports, um, they installed a kind of Soviet-era com- supercomputer in my loft, uh, which has now printed off this random question. There's a big red light at the top that Holly hates, uh, but it, it's there. So I've got this random question. Never seen it before. Nathan, are you ready? Hit me. Okay, here we go. <laughs> it's a gawker. Some of these are nuts. Um, right, this is the first time I've read this. If you had to play snakes and ladders in real life with actual snakes and actual ladders, would you be more li- more likely to die from a snake bite or falling off a ladder? <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Oh, I, I do worry about those people at Sigma who come up with these questions, but it's a, it's, a, it's a good one. Well, as an Australian, I will say I know my way around snakes and I know which ones to avoid and which ones are huggy. Um, okay. And as a cyclist with um, 
you know, in general, we have pretty poor upper body strength. I think um, being nervous from heights as well, I'd probably have pretty slippery hands from sweat. So I think, okay. um, I think when I sort of consider all of the variables here, I think I would like to try my luck against the snakes. Right. So, you, so you, okay. So you, so, but, how, but how are you, so you're m- more likely to die is the question from a snake bite or falling off a ladder is that's the question. Well, I mean, what's the, what's the situation? Like, are we in Australia where all the hospitals have anti-venom? Because, you know, we're pretty ah. well prepared. Not many people die in Australia. If you're stuck in the middle of the Amazon and you get hit, I think yeah. you're probably in a bit of trouble. But getting bitten by a lot of snakes, fun fact, especially Australian snakes, it takes them so much energy to actually produce venom that a lot of the time when they bite something that they don't want to eat, it's actually a warning shot and you don't actually get injected with venom. So it also, wow. you know, let's throw that into the mix here. Yeah, that's it. That's, mate, it, I, I, that's a, what a top fact. Didn't know that. Well, if you came to Australia and went bushwalking and saw as many snakes as I've seen, if you don't have some of this information, you'd probably never go bushwalking. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, you, I, I, um, I quite, I was quite intrigued, Nathan. We haven't got the answer yet, but I kind of know where we're heading. But what snakes are huggy? Because I, I found, I found, I mean, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of snakes, but I, I'm, I'm scared, scared, scared witless of spiders. But I could pick up a snake. So what snake? If I was in Australia, would me and you're out bushwalking? Um, let's say we've got a couple of rucksacks on. We camp in. Uh, we kind of settle down around a fire, cooking up some beans and sausages, and uh, a snake wanders up uh, or slithers up. Um, which one, which one could I hug? And you're like, Hey Matt, it's fine. Just give that one a hug. What varieties are we talking about? Well, a constrictor boa is very huggy. <laughs> right. Are they in Australia? I thought they're just in the Amazon. No, we don't have constrictor boas, but um, right, okay. I think that's just one that people will know, but there's a lot of small snakes like green tree snakes that, um, okay. they're not going to, they're not going to mess you up. It's more the, the brown snake or the, the red belly black snake, the tiger snake. They're the, they're the ones that you got to watch out for. What a name, though. The tiger snake. Yeah, and fun fact about the tiger snake is it's the only snake in Australia that will actually actively chase you. Oh, if you see a tiger snake, you want to get out of the way. But the other snakes, basically, you could walk within a foot of their head if you've sort of let them be known that you're there, and they'll just right. chill. Unless they're in that kind of, like, aggressive position, like, you know, that typical snake S-bend. Yeah. You see them in the S-bend, that's when you want to uh, – just wait a little bit before you pass. But um, snakes are not actually too intimidating to me. I'm way more scared of spiders. And I was actually bitten by a redback spider um, probably about five years ago on my shoulder. And oh, well, that's, so that's what we call a black widow, isn't it? <sighs> uh, no, it's, no, it's it's, no. No, it's not. Black widows are, I would say, at the same scary scale. Um, yeah. But it's not a redback. But um, yeah, okay. the red black, it really threw me around. I was super sick for about a week. I had a huge fever. And then the, um, the venom about these guys is it's actually flesh eating. So it goes in and you have this tiny little cut, but then the cut just keeps growing and growing and growing. You don't quite know where it stops. And then eventually the scab falls out and you're just left with this big hole. It's really disgusting. Oh, great. I mean, yeah, let, let's move on. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean that was great. The random topic. question generator just actually generated a, like almost like a fifteen-minute wildlife section uh, in the podcast. Oh, Zebra um, and uh, cycling, <laughs> gravel. Nathan, you have a new podcast which I 
I haven't listened to yet, but I will do because I'm intrigued by it because I do quite like riding on gravel, uh, called the Gravel Log. Um, why did you feel the need to start this off? Because I, I, although saying that, it's clearly because you just like gravel, a bit of a silly question, really. But uh, uh, kind of what led to it, mate? Well, it was just something that happened quite organically for me is that um, I got a gravel bike because I was doing a lot of kind of fire road riding on my road bike just to connect a few different roads up where, you know, you can make really creative routes if you actually have a bit of fire road between two roads that you've done in a very particular style of loop when you just stick to the road. And it kind of opened my world and my eyes to how big the matrix of riding is when you actually use gravel. So then I got a gravel bike and started really getting into it. And I think it's a fantastic training tool. I think it's something that we can stay off roads. And I think we can all agree that cycling is like kicking off like crazy, but the infrastructure is the same. And there seems to be more cars than ever before on that infrastructure. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. So um, for me, it's a big part about um, actually just having a little bit of time off from that constant low grade stress from the cars coming past you. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's just also this amazing connection with nature. And I think since, especially since the big quarantine that we did last year, where I had three months inside a building, yeah, um, geez. I really felt that need for nature and smelling things and just feeling like I had my own way to explore and, and take on challenges that I hadn't had for a very long time since I was mountain biking. And yeah. it's I sort of get the same kicks of mountain biking without needing to do the dangerous stuff. So it's, it's also a little bit risk averse compared to mountain biking. So I, I get the thrills without the spills. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the podcast, for me, I just see gravel as this like new emerging space that it's really undefined right now. And for me, the podcast, as much as anything, it's actually an internal exploration into what it is and to hear the perspectives from so many people that are also falling in love with it. Um, talking to coaches, talking to the UCI, talking to race organizers, talking to pundits, beginners, people that race. It's just been so interesting for me to actually learn about the gravel sphere, so to speak. And um, I'm I'm enjoying it a lot, and, and I really hope the listeners are getting something out of it as well. Um, so, are you? And you've done a you've done an event recently haven't you haven't you how did how did that go was it more of a fun thing or did you kind of race it because the thing that I've kind of learned a little bit the little I've never done a gravel event myself but I I would sincerely love to and I'd I'd like to think along with Sigma Sports I'd I'd do something like that in the future I've done a couple of reviews on on gravel in in Belgium and stuff but I really want to sort of have a bit of a challenge but whether I race it or just ride hard I don't know but how did you approach that event was it was it full on or was it just more like for a bit of training and just the experience? How did you approach it? This one was sort of an appetizer to real gravel racing. Okay. It was a gravel event where they had timed sections and um, all you had was a GPX file that you uploaded onto your Wahoo. Um, right. Okay. There was a fair bit of uh, sort of ducking through towns, which is why they didn't want to have it as an official race for the whole thing. Right. But the sections that were on were on and all of the local right, okay. riders were flying and it was just awesome. And it was just so nice to put that much fury through a gravel bike on a course that was safe and marked out. And um, yeah, it was fantastic. I had so much fun, but I, I had so many memories from my mountain bike days where I used to do these, you know, eight hour races, 12 hour races, 24 hour races, where you could either do it as a solo rider or as a team, Yeah. but you're riding with everybody at the same time. 
Yeah. And ultimately, the race is actually about participation and everyone having as much fun as possible. And there's no egos. There's no um, there's no sort of like roadie going on. Which yeah, <laughs> I hope I can say it that. happens, mate. I mean, it happens. You've said it. It does. It does happen. I mean, there is. I think every sport has it to a degree, and um, it's nice when. And, and I kind of, I, I guess, a more nuanced way of saying it. it's like the, 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 there's still a little bit of elitism in our sport, isn't there? Um, that, that's, that I wouldn't say it's prevalent, but it's definitely there. But, yeah, um, but that's so okay, this, yeah. this one's a lot. It's a lot more of a looser kind of style. It sounds absolutely, and not to take anything away from road riding or club racing or bunch rides. Um, part of having the experience of that is riding your sexy bike that you've been saving up for for a long time or of course yeah. that makes you feel good about yourself you know these these are good things and these are things that i enjoy as well but the thing that i took away was people didn't have to be on ten thousand dollar bikes some people yeah. were on um you know really beginner gravel bikes or a road bike that had been converted into one and people yeah. were wearing t-shirts some people were wearing jerseys people had bags on their bikes some people took it super seriously and just had stuff in their back pockets and I just like the fact that there's sort of no rules about it. And that's what makes it so interesting to talk about is that what is gravel? Because it's still just so undefined. And maybe that's the point. There is no defining gravel. It just is what it is. But um, in two weeks' time, I'm heading to the Nuevo Eroica in Siena to to ride the same roads that we do for the Strada Bianchi, but even more gravel. And uh, I'm actually doing that with Campagnolo and De Rosa. We're making like a nice film project around it and it's going to be cool. But that one's actually a race. So that's right. full gas from start to finish, and it's a hundred. So you like how many k? Sorry, one hundred and thirty. Ooh, all on gravel. I think there'll be section. I, I don't think there's any gravel race in the world that exists sans tarmac. They, they have to be sewn together by bits of tarmac, of course they do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think a general ratio that most races seem to advertise when I've been sort of perusing online, doing some research, is it seems to be the eighty twenty rule. Seems to be what most people are shooting for. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, all, the, all the best with that. I'll, I shall keep glued to your Instagram account, mate, for some uh, and uh, maybe video content around. That does sound that does sound wonderful. Because um, just well to wrap it up on the, on the kind of gravel side of things, I can't not mention that it's before. I think gravel bikes were a thing, but it was was it twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen that we I came out to Girona for a long weekend with Holly, and we went out with Ryder Hejlal, me and you. I was on your cross bike, your Cannondale cross bike. You were you and Ryder were just on your road bikes, I think, and we just but we just went. There's a fair bit of tarmac, but then we just you just found this road that I don't think we'd ever been down before, and then we found a restaurant at the end of it. Do you remember? That it was, just, was it was it was just in it was just brilliant. It, it wasn't even a restaurant. It was like somebody's house that it kind of sometimes was a restaurant, and the, we had to walk into this guy's house, didn't we, to kind of and go hello. Is there anybody there? He just wandered out and then cooked us a meal. Do you remember? Yeah, and it was like this big, like meaty casserole thing with sausages oh. and pork and beef, and I th- like I still think it was one of the tastiest things I've ever eaten. It was like real Catalan food. It was, yeah, it was, it was but, but it was, yeah, it was like pr- proper gamey fare, wasn't it? He said, well, what do you want? And then we said, well, what's local? And I think he'd, uh, yeah, there's some kind of fresh, pretty fresh meat in there as well as some nice sausages. But I just remember it's one of my favorite rides ever, you know, and I, we've all, both of us have ridden a lot, but that was one of my favorite rides ever. Cause first it was a great company, but just the kind of, just the roads, it was just proper adventuring. You felt, and there was a chart. The thing I still love about, about cycling is, it's not so much causing myself any pain, but just exploring and finding and the kind of sense of freedom that a bicycle gives you. And uh, with the gravel bikes, now you can go to places that you wouldn't ordinarily go to. And this un, un kind of 
you know, borderline uncharted territory. And, and I just loved the fact that we didn't really know where we were going. Uh, and we and we just found and we just found this place and uh, and it, that will always stick with me. It's just a great ride, and I think that's what that's, that's one of the exciting things about gravel, isn't it? You can just explore. Yeah, and there's a lot you can do on a road bike, but when you get on the gravel bike, there's just more terrain that you can actually handle without getting flat tires. And yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of about getting lost without calling it being lost. <laughs> it's sort of like actively trying to not know where you are to see where you're gonna go. Yeah, yeah. Well. Nathan, um, you were born in Brisbane, weren't you? Correct. But you didn't live there for very long, I believe. You you were like six weeks or so before you moved to Canberra and grew up? Yeah, it's, it's like one of these little ticks that I have every time I'm on a, on a presentation stage. Like, and Nathan has, who reigns from Brisbane, Australia. I'm like, that was the only time I've been to Brisbane. I just got born <laughs> and then we left. Well, in relation to that, because... Um, we, I thought you were f- from Brisbane, so uh, and and based on that information, I passed that on to Niall, our producer, who you've had a conversation with, Mr. Jingles himself, um, and he came up with a Brisbane jingle. Uh, but then I realised when I sent you a message to confirm it, it was like, no, I wasn't from Brisbane. So what we've got for you is a Brisbane forward slash Canberra quiz, but with a Brisbane theme tune. Take it away, Niall. A Brisbane quiz. A, 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 a Brisbane quiz. Now it is time for the Brisbane quiz. I do love that jingle. There we go. That's so behind it. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, we d- Niall didn't have his busy man. Niall didn't have time to change the, the Brisbane quiz jingle to Canberra. But so what I've done as a halfway house uh, is the quiz. I've got one question on Brisbane for you, and then three questions on Canberra. But as you know, um, I don't like to make a fool of people. I don't like to put people under any pr- undue pressure. I'm a, I'm a friendly, nice guy, I think. Uh, so it's a multiple choice quiz, okay? Well, do you know, you've made me nervous because um, <laughs> I'm bound to get some things wrong. And my dad once said to me before my first day at university, he's like, Nathan, in the tutorial rooms, remember that sometimes it's better for everyone to think you're stupid and say nothing than to open your mouth and prove it. <laughs> okay. What a, what a sage piece of advice. I, I quite like that. I quite like that. Well, like I say, you've got four choices here, Nathan, anyway. So, uh, you know, you don't have to dig something out of thin air. So uh, you can just give us a random answer. But first up is a question based on Brisbane, okay? And then subsequent to that, it'll all be about Canberra. So let's start off with question number one. Okay. Brisbane is the home to many bird species. But which of the following birds isn't an actual bird? Okay. So Brisbane home to many bird species, but which of the following four birds isn't an actual bird? So A, the brush turkey. B, the fancy tipper. C, the noisy miner. D, the rainbow lorikeet. So three of those are real birds. One of them is a, is a fake bird that I actually invented. I'm going to say it is the turkey. So the brush turkey is a fake bird. That's my guess because... I definitely know that the noisy miner and the uh, the lorikeet or the rosella, whatever you called the last one, they exist. Yep. And okay. I think I've heard of a bird called the tipper before. So I'm going okay. to go with the brush turkey. Okay. Well, in fact, that's incorrect. Mm. I invented the fancy tipper. So sorry. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm I did invent the fancy. There might be a bird called a tipper. I've never heard it, but I just it, it came into my head. So there is, there is a bird called the brush turkey. Wow. 
Yeah. Steve Irwin learned something. There, there we go. So with the brush turkey, the noisy miner, and the rainbow lorikeet, as you correctly said, are birds. The fancy tipper is a figment of my imagination. So now we're moving on to the Canberra part of the quiz, but there isn't a jingle. Um, so we'll leave a pause if anybody wants to put their own jingle in. Two, three. There we go. Question number one of the Canberra quiz now. Right. Canberra, Nathan, is Australia's capital, as you know. But in terms of population, where does it rank in the Australian top 10? So where does Canberra rank in terms of population, uh, top 10 cities in Australia? Is it eighth? Is it B, sixth? Is it C, fifth? Or is it third in terms of populations? All right, well, so I'll just eight... process of elimination. Yeah, population... so eighth, sixth, fifth or third. Yeah, so go for populations it. Populations in Australia are Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, and then I believe maybe even Newcastle or Wollongong has more than Canberra. So I'm going to go for sixth. You're going to go for sixth. It's eight. Eighth. Eighth. What about it's eighth, eighth, mate. Yeah. Maybe Hobart. Sorry, mate. Yeah. Um, I. Th- you would. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I had, you can find the you can find the list on Wikipedia, but yeah, it's currently eighth in terms of population. But, Come on, uh, Canberra gets greening. I, I know it, it, they, they need to start. I mean, you thought. I mean, maybe because of the lockdowns, maybe there's going to be a few more kids knocking them out because people didn't have quite as much to do. Uh, but anyway, moving on to question number two. There's still time to turn this round, Nathan. No, you haven't got any points just yet, but I think. Hearing you kind of thinking about these questions, you're working hard. There's a lot of logic at play, which is good. So question number two, which is really question number three, uh, is as follows. Nathan, what climate, according to the Köppen-Geiger classification, does Canberra have? Okay, so what climate, according to the world-renowned and scientifically ratified Köppen-Geiger classification, does Canberra have? Is it A, humid subtropical, B, oceanic, C, subpolar oceanic, or D, monsoon? I'm going to go with subpolar oceanic. It's not. Mm. It's B. It's oceanic. Oh, God. God, But but there are parts of Australia that are subpolar oceanic just along the south the south kind of uh, east coast rather than the kind of uh, kind of east coast so just below where canberra sits mm. uh, it does change around that the, the bottom kind of curve because I, I was a little thrown because canberra sits at 700 meters altitude at the city and we have a lot of hills and mountains behind it that go over a thousand and we actually get snow quite often so i was sort of thinking wow well, maybe oceanic doesn't involve the cold weather canberra gets but i learned something new every day there we go, Matt. And I learned about the, the Koppen-Geiger classification. I'll be doing some further reading after this podcast. Okay, mate. Um, I actually did an extra question. There's two more questions. Let's rattle through these. Question number three of the Canberra quiz, mate. Uh, and you're, you're doing well, mate. Although they haven't got any right answers, your logic is is is, is bob on. It's been a okay. conversation at very least. <laughs> exactly. Right. Question three, Nathan. Which of the following countries does not, so does not have a sister city with Canberra? So which of the following countries does not have a sister city with Canberra? Is it A, China, B, Japan, C, Taiwan, D, New Zealand? So three of those 
do have sister cities with Canberra. Actually, they're the only the only countries in the world that do because there are only three sister cities. But one of those is an imposter. Is it China, Japan, Taiwan, or New Zealand? I know that Japan does. Yes, that that well, I tell you, what, I'm going to help you. It does, and well, that's all. That's all. We have the Chinese embassy in Canberra, and we also have a beautiful Chinese gardens. So I'm going to assume that China is also one, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Taiwan is the third. So I'm going to say that New Zealand is the odd one out. It's wrong. It's New Zealand. You, you do have uh, it's Taiwan, which is the imposter. But your logic again. There are Chinese gardens. There are Japanese gardens in Canberra as well. Um, but it's also twinned with a city in New Zealand. I think it's. I think it might be Wellington actually. Uh, but I've, I've lost that page in my tabs. But sorry, mate. It's Taiwan. No sister cities. But but great. Still great knowledge though, mate. And I think that's the wonderful thing about this quiz. It encourages kind of um, quite academic conversation. Right. Final question. Hopefully, <laughs> we have an extra question. I can maybe redeem myself. Yeah. Okay. Like here we, we go. Play football. It's like last goal wins. This is it. Yeah. Let's basically. Okay, mate. The quiz rides on this question. If you get this right, you've basically won the quiz. All right. Question. It's the final question in the Brisbane forward slash Canberra quiz. Four. Question four. Canberra used to have a festival called Stone Fest, which in 2012 was renamed. But what was it renamed to? Or yeah, what's it renamed to? So. Festival called Stonefest, 2012, they changed the name. Did it change from Stonefest to Stone Day, Stone Zone, Stone Time, or Stone Rock? Well, since I haven't <laughs> been in Canberra for very long, since 2010, um, Sorry, mate. I'm going to have to take a stab in the dark, which might actually be better than reasoning. So I'm going to go with Stone Rock. It's Stone Day. Oh, mate. Oh, no. Oh, Nathan. Well, maybe my dad was right about opening my mouth and proving it. I I feel a bit guilty because I added emphasis to Stone Rock. uh, And I think I might have influenced your answer by going Stone Rock like that. So I I apologize. Uh, So I'll, I'll take a little bit of the flack there. Um, for, for maybe so anyway um, I think we'll just get the audience we always film this or record this in front of a live studio audience so so Niall let's just fire up the audience mate so I think it was a, a cracking effort uh, there by uh, Nathan Haas uh, a wonderful performance although uh, in terms of uh, points uh, there were none but so, actually uh, you could see it as glass half full <laughs> here because not only did I not get any right I got all of them wrong yeah so does that mean you owe me points, Nathan? <laughs> God, being the optimist. that was great. Right, I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked a few other people that I, I just love the answers, and I know that you'll be golden at this, mate. You've been in several teams through your career. Let's start at Conti level at 2010. So what I want you to do is sum up in one word all of the teams you've ridden for. So first up, Genesis Wealth Advisors. You were there for two years. How would you sum up that experience, that team, your kind of feelings there in one word, mate? Education. Oh, you're nice and quick. So education. Uh, next up, Garmin, Garmin, well, it's Garmin for three years, Garmin Barracuda, Garmin Sharp. So, so they're from 2012 to 2014, one word answer, mate. Inspiration. Oh, straight off. Education, inspiration. Next up, um, dimension data. 
Consolidation. Oh, I'm writing these down. They're all uns, so tunes, aren't they? Education, inspiration, consolidation. Uh, Katusha. Disappointment. Oh, so it's a munt uh, and tunes. Okay, <laughs> disappointment. I'm not laughing at your disappointment, mate. I just think it's a, just uh, quite a contrast, disappointment. Okay, mate. And finally, um, you're in year two with Cofidis. One word for your Cofidis experience, mate. Magnifique. Magnifique. Um, Niall, are we allowed to have a one-word answer in another language? Oh, there we go. Uh, that's fine, then. We can accept that as an answer. So, education, inspiration, consolidation, disappointment, and magnifique. That's actually quite... That's a nice spread, isn't it? I think... Um... I think that was quite rounded, yes. <laughs> You've gone to the short answers now. It was. And actually, you, I mean, you're with Cofidis now. Um, and give us a sense of what it's like, you know, riding with Cofidis, because they're a team that has been around um, for such a long time now. I mean, what's it like being in a very, very different outfit? All of the teams that you've been with clearly, I mean, every team has its own clear identity, doesn't it? And a very different cultural kind of background as well, the way they kind of run things. But what, what's it like uh, with Cofidis? Yeah, I think, you know, all of your teams are shaped by what the team is, but also maybe the phase of life that you're in and your relationship with the sport. And I think I've been very lucky to be in the right teams at the right time. And I've really enjoyed my career at kind of every point. It's been fantastic. But something that I always wanted to experience was to be on a French team. I think yeah. kind of the beating heart of cycling in so many ways is in France. And the French cycling culture has been something that, you know, I watched since I was a kid watching the Tour de France and um, in saying that Cofidis has been a team that's been there ever since I've been alive, actually they're yeah. 28 years strong and the sponsorship is ongoing, I think for another three or four years. Um, so I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, they're the longest ongoing cycling team in the world. So there's a lot of history there and there's also some directors who have been there from the start and mechanics and even uh, our general manager, Cedric Basseur, um, he went from being a rider at Cofidis and now he's the general manager. So it's um, a lot of people sort of say, you know, the feeling of family in cycling. Uh, I think a lot of people say it too often and yeah. sometimes even a little bit unconsidered to say that, but there is yeah. truly a family element to the Cofidis cycling team. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been really wonderful seeing just in the last two years because they stepped up, well, I wouldn't say stepped back up to the world tour because it wasn't called the world tour before, but yeah. they stepped up from, you know, you could say the second division, um, which, uh, was called pro continental, um, back to world tour last year and just seeing their progression in technology, in terms of nutrition, uh, in terms of coaching, they're just really stepping up to be, um, really a world tour team. And it's been so yeah. cool to sort of see the new influence of all of the modern cycling, but a lot of the kind of cool cultural traits within the team that are still very French. So it's, it's a really cool juxtaposition and um, yeah, it's, it's a very enjoyable team to be on. And, uh, and what's the rest of the season uh, looking like for you um, sort of from, from this point onwards, mate, do, do you know your exact program yet? No, I don't. I've, I've had a bit of a troubled season this year and the fact that um, I was flying at the start of the season and having really big confidence. And then at Strada Bianchi, I got, um, 
I caught coronavirus and didn't realize until a few days into Torino Adriatico. Oh, and um, okay. unfortunately, I also had pneumonia at the same time. So I was a bedridden boy for quite a long time. And um, yeah, it was quite remarkable how much the virus took out of me. And yeah. um, you know, I lost more or less you know, four or five weeks of bike riding altogether. And then it has just been a slow building process to get my form back. And um, I was feeling really good at the Dauphiné and then the race after at Finisterre. Uh, uh, sorry, not Finisterre, Paris Camembert. Um, yeah, you were, ten, you were top 10 there, weren't you, mate? Yeah, I had a really great race there. I was really feeling back to my old self. And then we hit this part of the year where there's no more bike racing. So, um, you know, I'm just holding my breath. And um, I took a small break uh, just because it's hard to hold top form for so long, as you'd remember. Um, yeah. So I'm just back in a bit of a building phase coming up to the next part of the season. And um, my kind of program approach from here on in is I've just asked the team to put me in every race that I can do. Sure. And I'm not too focused on Grand Tours. They've never been my favorite thing. So um, yeah. I might forgo the Vuelta to just do lots of um, smaller one day and one week races for the rest of the year. But you generally find out your program. Um, this is common on maybe every team in the World Tour. You generally find out your program on the second rest day of the Tour de France. Right. Okay. Okay. That's that, that's that's good to know. See, it's nice to. Uh, it is. It is quite. I think a lot of people from the outside will look and think you have your whole year mapped out. And obviously for the first part of the year in the winter, there's, there's some planning, but um, you know, many riders don't know, don't know what they're doing because there's so many variables in, in bike racing and so much, so much attrition in terms of the resilience of the team and, and, and kind of the, 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 the kind of push and pull of illness, uh, injuries and stuff that, um, and also form as well, isn't it? Cause, uh, and, and the way that team leaders change their plans and then the whole team around them can change. There's so many different variables, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the big show of cycling is the Tour de France. So coming up to the Tour de France, every single bit of energy and thinking and planning for for most riders anyway just goes into the Tour de France. And then once they get there, they can kind of take stock and say, okay, who's done lots of race days before the Tour? Who's probably, um, you know, coming back from injury or sickness in the first part of the season? Because there's always, there's always a handful of guys that are in that situation. And, and that's where I'm at now. So... Um, you know, I've my battery, so to speak, um, in terms of the battery that you have for the whole season, is still quite replenished. So I'm yep. I'm ready to rip. I just can't wait to get back racing. Great stuff, mate. Just, oh, oh, what? Random oh. question alert. Sorry, random mate. Question alert. It is time for a random right, question. Let me just go over. Okay, let me just pop over. Just walking back now. Uh, with this bit of paper, sorry about that, mate. They just flash up at any time. Um, okay, this is this is an interesting one, Nathan. And I know you're. We've talked about wildlife quite a bit in this uh, in this pod already. But if you could domesticate any animal in the world, which would you pick? Oh, that is a good question. It's a corker, isn't it? That is a corker. So we have a black cat right now that we call a mini panther because he's way bigger than any domestic house cat should be. Um, right so a mini panther of, that's a great name so part of me wishes we had a real panther um just so our little panther could have a friend um because i think he doesn't really fit in with other cats because he's just too big and rambunctious so um part of me says panther but the other part of me says i think the cutest animal in the world is the koala in australia and i would just love to have a koala come up and give you a cuddle before breakfast so i'm going to go with koala they are lo- I mean, that's a, they are lovely, aren't they? 
They're very slow moving. I've only seen a Kerala once in in real life, and it was at the Tour Down Under in 2019, I think. Um, The car stopped in the road. I was out on my bike, and um, a woman sort of helping this little koala along. And and what an amazing – I was entranced. Lovely, aren't they? Absolutely gorgeous little fellas or ladies. Yeah, and the other thing I love about them is they're they're like pacifists. They eat leaves. They don't hurt anything. So they've yeah. We're just riding around the hills of Adelaide, and you look up and you see this gorgeous little teddy bear just hugging the tree, having a sleep. I think they're just amazing. I think they're kind of, in terms of the pace of life, they're kind of inspirational. They're kind of they're the kind of creature that I think could, if you were to have a hug like you just described, domesticate one, have a hug. I think it would uh, de-stress you. I think it'd be like a kind of little stress ball that you didn't need to squeeze you just hugged and it kind of lowered your heart rate and stuff like that every day of the week for a koala is a sunday exactly just hanging out drinking like pina colada kind of like you know decaf um coconut lattes (laughs) right we're coming towards the end mate because uh and also the tour the the tour de france stage is coming to end i haven't got a clue what's going on um but I, i want to ask you one final question, Nathan, before you actually uh, lead us through, you're going to do a final jingle for us. Are you, uh, did you forget about that bit? Are I've you still willing to totally do? I totally forgot about that bit. But don't worry. I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, it's been a blast, mate. We've There's been some cycling in there somewhere, but it's been quite tangential, which I really like. And it's um, I can't wait till we actually meet again in real life, mate, and have a bit of a catch up. Uh, it'll be, I'm really looking forward to that. But it's been lovely to talk to you. But my final question, bud, is um, the Grand Prix... Nathan Haas uh, is a proposal. Um, a, a big sponsor kind of calls you up, sends you a fax, and said, we want to put on a race called the GP Nathan Haas. Uh, unlimited budget. Um, where's the cause? Where in the world is it, mate? You might just have to cut this out for a second while I have a think, because um, there might be a bit of a pause for the first time on the show. So. <laughs> That's yeah, because good, good question. We know. I mean, and we might get um, to, while while Nathan's thinking. Uh, I've no doubt that Niall can uh, probably pull together um, just some I don't know some lift music or something like that for me to just riff over. Whilst uh, Nathan has a little ruminate, um, <laughs> I have a feeling that he might choose potentially Italy. He might choose. Uh, he might be a little bit of France in there, but I have a funny feeling that the GP Haas could be uh, in Australia. But I may be wrong. Uh, let's see if he's ready. I think if I was to have the GP Nathan Haas, it would be in Adelaide, Australia. Okay. And it would be on road bikes where I would suggest people using 32 mil tires because we would be ripping up in the Adelaide Hills, but connecting some of my favorite roads with big sections of off-road gravel. And we would stop at the Uradla pub for Good old-fashioned Australian pub grub. Beer's optional. They also have a non-alcohol option if you need it. And it would finish in Glenelg, and we would all go for a swim in the ocean afterwards. Oh, mate, that sounds... I feel like I kind of want to, you know, start a crowdfunding so we can get that race off the ground. (laughs) Round of applause. Oh, round of applause. Our live studio audience, our live forward slash recorded studio audience, actually love that idea. So I, I do like the sound of the GP Nathan House. And maybe at some point in the future, that will uh, come to fruition and I could maybe come along and maybe commentate on it uh, or maybe even kind of ride, really, mate. But um, thanks very much, Nathan. It's been, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it, mate. It's been lovely talking to you and and your insight, especially uh, not the, not just your random insights, uh, although, of course, you're 
your knowledge on Brisbane and Canberra, you know, needs a bit of work, but I think you did really well. Um, but your insight in terms of the modern pro peloton and your your thoughts on that, mate, are really, really insightful and, you know, massively interesting. And I hope, I'm sure that people uh, will have enjoyed it. But it's come to that point in the pod where we are demanding of you, in a very polite way, um, an outro strum. So if you kind of want to grab your guitar, I don't know whether you've already put yeah, it over your shoulder. I'll go grab it. Yeah, just go and grab your guitar. So um, at this point in the pod, I'm just going to fill for a minute because Nathan's guitar is near his podcast setup, um, what he likes to call a pod pod. Um, he's a very accomplished guitarist and he's got a lovely singing voice as well. We've had a few of our guests sing on the podcast in the past. Cecile Uchel. Here we go, we've got the strum. So uh, Nathan, take it away. Kind of 30 second, kind well, of random I'm outro. tuning it because it's for sure. Oh, he's tuning it. Give me one second. All oh, right, okay. He's just going to tune it up. Um it's one of my favourite part of gigs, actually, going to a live gig, jazz gig, you know, pop gig, rock gig, is when they tune up. You just sat there with a beer, looking at the stage, and you kind of it just kind of builds the tension, um, almost like you're kind of salivating over the music that's yet to come. Um, and seeing a master at work, you know, almost at one with their with their instrument, um, is a lovely thing. And then and then you know, as as they as the tuning process continues. As the musical instrument springs into life, I think we're nearly there. All right, take it away, Nathan. It's the seventh day of the Tour de France. The boring stage is getting long. Here I sit with Matt Stevens, talking shit on his podcast, and then we leave to watch the final. I can't wait, it's getting hard, but everyone knows the most interesting thing they'll probably hear is this podcast. Oh, mate, that's brilliant. Oh, get around another round of applause now. Get the audience fired up for that one. Oh, that has to be the best outro of all time. Wonderful scenes here. Uh, Nathan, uh, I'll let you get off to the tour. Give my love to Laura and um, take care of yourself, mate. That was an absolute blast. Thanks, guys, for having me. It was a good, it was a good laugh. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Wonderful stuff. I kind of wished he hadn't stopped when he did. I was really enjoying that. All the best to Nathan as he enters as many races as possible for the rest of the 2021 season. Good luck, mate. Hope you find our chat interesting, entertaining, or at least it helped to keep you from boredom for about an hour. Or if you did scrub to the end, I hope you enjoyed doing that. But please consider going back through the podcast and at the very least listen to the ad so we can keep me and Mr. Jingles in a job. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod. I want to recommend it to a green tree snake who comes up to you in need of a hug if you're in the Australian outback and happen to see one. Finally, a massive thanks again to Nathan for joining us on the podcast today. Now, if you're into gravel riding, that's GR, or at least a little gravel curious, or LGC, why not check out Nathan's podcast, The Gravel Log, which is available in the usual places. Cheers all, stay safe, and goodbye. Thank you.